it's nice to have you all here this morning. Uh, my name is Duke, and uh, I've been thoroughly rebuked by Julie for being here today, and I apologize for that and not being at the men's retreat. Um, but somebody had to man the ship, and it was me. So here I am. Um, well, if you have your Bibles, why don't you open up to Galatians chapter 3 this morning. We're in the midst of a series uh, in Galatians, and kind of taking it verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and um, just kind of the way things lined up. This is my privilege to preach for the third time, and uh, just kind of been really fun having such a, a run at this and, and being able to look at these passages and how they tie into each other and how they all fit together. Um, two weeks ago, we looked at the importance of accountability and how Paul made himself accountable to the, the council in Jerusalem. Um, and just to make sure that his teaching was in, in line and in keeping with, with the other apostles and in his desire to reach the Gentiles. And we also saw how Paul uh, held Peter accountable. That while Peter was uh, a great apostle and a great leader, he, he hedged his bet a little bit. And when the Judaizers weren't around, the Jewish leaders, uh, he would embrace the Gentiles and their lifestyle. But when they showed up, he would... He would kind of hide away from the Gentiles and go back. And, and Paul called him on that. He held him accountable and said, Do you know what you're doing? You're reinforcing all the wrong things. Last week, though, we, we looked at the other side of accountability. that can be abused. If our motivation isn't correct, to just be accountable, just to follow the rules, is not what Jesus is all about. There's something more important than that. That we're to live by faith. And faith in Jesus. And that's how we're to govern our lives. That's how we're to direct our lives. And then we come to chapter 3. And chapter 3 is one of these passages that is an accommodation to our human flesh. How many of you are human? Anybody struggle with that at all? Okay, I, I struggle with it all the time. Now, intellectually, doesn't it make total sense that God loves us just the way we are, and that if we just believe in him and trust him and do what we can and cooperate with him, that that should be enough. Doesn't that make total intellectual sense? Not really. Not really. Well, for me it does. Um, for others, maybe not. But for me, it's like, that should be enough. I recognize I can't do it. You can't do it. It's physically impossible. We have sinful natures. That's how it should be. But there's this, this thing in us that... Why do we keep going back? Now, I've done a lot of uh, premarital counseling and, and counseling with couples and stuff when I was a full-time pastor. Have you ever said, when I get married, I will never blank? When, when, I, uh, when I have kids, I will never blank. Uh, when I'm a school teacher, I will never, whatever. I mean, have you ever had that idea that because of how you've seen things, that you will never do that yourself? How many of you have opened your mouth and said, oh my gosh, that was my mom? <laughs> oh my gosh, that was my dad? Now that, that's kind of an amazing thing. Why is that? One of the questions I ask couples when I'm, I'm counseling them before they get married is, how do you resolve conflict? How is conflict resolved in your family? And I get all kinds of interesting answers. Like sometimes it wasn't resolved. Basically, you know, we would just be silent or basically, there would be a lot of yelling, and then my dad would always win, or my mom would always win, and da-da-da-da-da, back and forth. 
And then I ask, well, how do you think you will resolve conflict? Oh, I'll never do it that way. I will do it this way. And yet invariably what happens when a person gets put into the, the, the cauldron of conflict? We go back to our defaults. Um, I'm having a lot of issues with my computer right now. How many of you know what defaults are? <laughs> defaults are the systems that they started with. And then you do all these fancy things. And then you try hard to get back to the defaults. Well, most of us, when we're in a moment of crisis, we fall back on what we know best. What we're most com comfortable with. And that's just the way we are. So when Paul comes to chapter 3, we see in the first part of the passage, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning, and it breaks into three distinct parts. And in the first part, what I see is Paul being completely astonished. It's like he can't believe what he's encountering with the Galatians. This is what he says. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was nothing, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Paul seems to be astonished. And as I started reading about this, you know, I, I kind of, yeah, what's up with that? Why are these guys doing this? I can't, I can't believe it. Why are they going back to works? Why can't they just believe? Why can't they believe that I've been crucified with Christ? It's no longer I who live, but Jesus who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why can't I just live that way? And then I realized that there's something very appealing about the opposite. There's some, there's some things that are very appealing about a life where we approve ourselves by works as opposed by faith. Three things that as I thought about this, and there might be more, and, and maybe some of you don't uh, have this issue, but, but these are some things that came to me as I look back over my life, how I was raised, uh, the world that I live in, that makes works so appealing to me in my flesh. Number one, it's what I know best. Works is what I know best. How many of you grew up where if you did good, you were rewarded, and if you did bad, you weren't rewarded? Was that true of anybody? That was true of my life. Now, my parents, I loved my parents. They, were, they did the very best they knew how, and, and, uh, but there was this deal with them, especially my mom, that, that when I was out of favor with her, there was a coldness. There was an aloofness. That just things weren't right. I wasn't okay. And as a kid, I, I struggled with that. And so what I realized is that I tried to prove myself to my mom and to my dad. I would go out and I would try to do things. And I remember that the, the, the bar seemed to get higher and higher. My sister was a straight-A student. 4.0. I remember I came home once with, a, with what I... Basically, I'll see in a couple B's. I was so excited to show my mom my report card, and my sister was crying because she got a B plus. <laughs> I just kind of put my report card back in my pocket. And, How'd you do this semester, Duke? Well, I did okay. 
All I had to do was become student body president of my campus to kind of, oh, that's great, or win the lead in the play at school, and we were a big high school, and it was a major production. That's all. And the bar kept getting set higher and higher. And then going to seminary and at church, and the recognition of people was always based on, on who was the best, who had the highest score, who had the biggest church, who had the, the biggest numbers. And there was this idea that, that that's what made you okay. You're only as good as your last performance, so to speak. Well, that's works. That's performance. And as long as you can perform pretty well, then you're okay. But when you start to struggle, when you start to slip, that's when the world starts unfolding all around you. But that's what I knew. That's how I was raised. That's the world I live in. At work, at school. Test scores and all these different things. There's pressure to perform. There's pressure to make the, the, the grade in everything I do. That's the world as we know it, isn't it? The world doesn't say, hey, just relax. Just do the best you can, and if the numbers aren't there, we, we, don't worry about it. Because we're a nonprofit. You know, we're not in this for money, to make money. Huh? If your patients aren't taken care of, don't worry about it, because, you know, we just want you to be relaxed. You're okay just the way you are. That's not how my world works. So that's something that kind of is ingrained in me that makes uh, works appealing. The second thing, it makes us feel good about ourselves. Um, Miracosta, we won our football game on Friday. And it's, it's a different world when you win as opposed to when you lose. We don't feel so good about ourselves when we lose. When I, 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 I get great reviews from my principal, I feel good. When I don't, I don't feel good at all. There's something about working hard and having a reward that feels really good. And to get off that, that treadmill, so to speak, is kind of frightening. But the third thing is where I think it gets really subtle and devious for us. And that is, if we allow ourselves to be on that treadmill of the performance-driven life, we can now put ourselves in a position to judge others. If we allow ourselves to be judged, we can now hold judgment over other people. If we don't want that, if, if we want to live by faith, if we want to just believe that God accepts us as we are, then we don't have that, that entitlement any longer. But works gives us that opportunity to look down on other people. And, that, and we kind of play that card when we want. Isn't it kind of convenient how we do that? We don't like someone, so we can withhold affection. We can withhold doing the right thing. We cannot love our enemy. We can, we, we're entitled to have hurt feelings, and we're entitled to do all these different things. But that's all tied up, I think, in that, that world of works and performance. And if people fail us, then we can be disapproving of them, just as people have been disapproving of us. That's kind of an appeal that, that I, I didn't realize before. But when I get on that treadmill, that's exactly how it is for me. I think it is for a lot of us. It gives us that opportunity to be better than other people. Now, obviously, we won't be as good as some others, but we just kind of omit them from the formula, don't we? When, when, when you compare yourself, who, how many of you compare yourself to the very best person you know? Not me. I'm looking at the scumbags of the earth and go, you know, Eloise, when it comes to husbands, I'm pretty good. 
I'm not like that guy over there, you know, that has run off and done all those. So I'm doing pretty well. Well, she's got a million guys that she could compare me to that probably are better. That's the downside of it. So here's the question that I think Paul answers in the next paragraph. And that is, what gets God's attention? What gets God's attention? What do you believe gets God's attention? For a lot of my life, a lot of my Christian life, I believe that what I did got God's attention. I remember in, in college so clearly that if there was a girl that I really liked, and I, I had a hard time getting up the guts to, to call someone to ask him out, but I remember that if I could go a week and live just what I thought was a spot-on Christian life, then Friday night I would have the guts to call that girl because I had God's attention. God would be on my side. He would be favorable to me. And they still said no. It's true. It's true. What do you believe gets God's attention? What do you believe? I think there's two options here. Paul's going to say there's the performance-driven life. How are you doing when it comes to obeying all the rules and regulations? And if you're in touch with all those different things, that's what gets God's attention. Isn't that what the Judaizers believed? If I'm in line with all the commandments, if I keep all of them, then God will bless me. And it's the person that is sinful that, that God doesn't, doesn't pay attention to, that he casts aside. The alternative is, or is it the faith rest life? Is it the faith rest life? Faith rest life is a concept that I believe is here. It's in Hebrews. Jesus talked about it in, in, in Matthew chapter 11. What is it that gets God's attention? Look at what Paul's answer is to the question of, of what makes work so appealing? Why do you get back on that treadmill? He says, consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's in Genesis. And it, it, this is an amazing theological concept. Abraham was a good guy. I, don't, I think we could argue that. He came from a completely pagan culture, or of the Chaldees. They were polytheistic. They had all these different gods for everything. And somehow, out of all that religious clutter, he heard the voice of the one true God. And the one true God called him and said, I want you to go to Canaan. And he did it. He obeyed. Now, did he go straight to Canaan? No. He stopped for a while. His dad, and it took him a long time to get there. But he believed God. He followed God. And he ended up where he was supposed to be. And it says that God credited it to him as righteousness. He said, that's exactly all I want from you is to believe me, to trust me. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Now this is going to be very important when we understand the blessing that God promised to Abraham. He promised Abraham a land, a people, and a blessing. The land was Israel, the people were the Jews, and that the blessing, what is the blessing? We're going to look at that in just a moment. The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through him. Not just the Jews. 
Not just Israel, but every single person on the planet would be blessed through this one man's faithfulness, Abraham. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul will even make the argument, when did God make these promises to Abraham? Before he was circumcised or after? This all happened pre-circumcision, before he, he lined himself up that way. We are, we are blessed through our obedience. We're blessed through faith. Now, I've got an, a, an illustration here that I think is a, a great illustration. I found this when I, I teach uh, uh, Israel as part of the ancient civilizations that we study in sixth grade. And I found this. The picture at the top, anybody recognize that picture? What's going on there? Looks like a murder, doesn't it? <laughs> okay. But that's Abraham. That's Isaac making himself a, a willing sacrifice for his father. And that is the angel that is stopping the, the, the procedure. So that's Abraham. Three of the world's major religions trace their origins to this man, Abraham. Obviously the star of David, the Jews, right? All Jews, the first Jew was Abraham. He's the father of all the Jews. The blessing that the Jews believe come from Abraham is the law. That God has given us the, the, the perfect law with which to live our lives. To find satisfaction in life. And to please God. And that is what, and, and the prophets. That's the truth. And that's the blessing that, that uh, the Jews believe that has come through Abraham. On the right, I think you recognize that star, uh, that symbol. What's that? Islam. Interestingly enough, Islam traces its origins back to Abraham. But they don't believe that it was uh, Isaac on there. Who do they believe was on the sacrifice? Ishmael. That he was the son of promise. And what's the blessing that comes to us through, through Islam? What do they believe? It was the prophet and the Quran, his writings. But in both situations, it's, it's, a, it's a performance-driven life. 613 commands in Israel. I mean, today, isn't that the most controversial thing in the newspaper? About what does it take to be a devoted Muslim? And what if you're not? And in some cases, it will literally cost you your life. And this ISIS thing that's spreading around, and, and, and that's what it's about. In the middle. Who's that a picture of? Jesus. Jesus. Christians believe that the blessing that comes to all nations isn't the law, isn't the prophet, but it's the Savior. It's the Savior Jesus Christ, who came not to set the, the law aside, because in both situations, whether it's Islam or Judaism, you've got to come to the conclusion, I can't do this. I am imperfect. I don't have the ability to live a perfect life. I can't atone for my own sin. So Jesus did it for us, and that's, that's the shepherd. That is the Son of God who died in our place. That's Paul's answer. That's Paul's answer. And so we have a clear choice in this issue. Will I live a faith-rest life or a performance-driven life? And anybody that chooses the performance-driven life is going to be frustrated is going to be angry, uh, is going to be judgmental of others, 
unforgiving because they don't experience forgiveness. They don't experience any of the things that Jesus stands for or represents. The reminder. Last paragraph. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Once you get into that stream, you've got to keep performing. You've got to keep measuring up. And that's a curse. That's unobtainable. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. I hope none of you, how many of you, I was talking to my friend Larry, how many of you realize none of us get out of here alive? Okay, some of you kind of banking on, you know, they're going to find the cure for death sooner or later, before my time comes. Okay, maybe, but if you're counting on that, okay, the reality is none of us get out of here alive. So the question is, am I going to stand before God when I die, or is there not going to be anything there? Now I'm finding that most people have a lot of faith in oblivion, that there's nothing, it's just that's it, okay? And that doesn't bring me a lot of comfort personally, but it seems to bring a lot of my colleagues and friends a lot of comfort. When you die, that's it. You're just it's done. It's, it's over for all of eternity. You're done. Your TV set, you're turned off, you're put out in the trash, that's it. Not my idea of, of something to look forward to, but a lot of people put absolute faith in that. But what's the other alternative? That there is someone or something that we will stand before. And what Paul is telling us in that one phrase is that uh, clearly no one is justified before God by the law. How many of you are willing to try to stand before God and say, I aced it. I did it, man. Take me in, right? And then as he says, uh, hey, Peter, roll the tape. Wait a second. You don't understand it. How many of you have a list of excuses as long as you know, Like, it wasn't me. You know, I didn't do it. Okay. I don't think any of us, when we stand before a perfectly righteous God, are going to try to say, I did it. It all, I mean, you laid it all out for me. I did everything you told me to do and all the things you told me not to do. Okay, what is it? Um, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. Okay. Eloisa chewed before I met her, but I made her stop. Okay? That's not going to work. Now, I think some of us are kind of hoping, because that's the answer most people give when I, say, when I ask them. So when if you stand before God, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? And what's the number one answer? Ding, 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 family feud. Number one answer is, I lived a pretty good life. That's the number one answer most people are going to give in that situation. Pretty good life. How does pretty look good compare to perfection? Not much. Not much. And that's the difference. Because the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Yeah. Biblical faith. Yeah, what, what faith is. 
what faith is. Faith is trust. Faith is, the best illustration I've ever seen was Indiana Jones, Tim, uh, The Last Crusade, chasm between his father who's dying in the chalice, and he's got the chalice, and he's trying to get across, but there's this chasm, and, and he's been told the righteous will live by faith. You have to take a step of faith. And there's that chasm, and it goes all the way down, and faith, he takes the step. And as soon as he takes the step, what happens? He sees the platform that goes across. See, a lot of people say, we see and then we believe. (coughs) That's not biblical faith. What's biblical faith? We believe, then we see. That's biblical faith. We believe and then we see. Abraham believed and then he saw. And my favorite, because I, I talk to the kids about this, and it's, it's really fun teaching sixth graders, because when I tell them, okay, so, you know, um, Abraham was told he'd have a child and all this stuff, so he did it the human way. And, and Sarah, his wife, comes to him and says, okay, take Hagar, my handmaid. I can't have children, but I love you, so go have a child through Hagar. And Abraham's, are you, are you serious about this? Yes, I am, okay. So he does it. And then what does Sarah do? I can't believe you did that. How dare you? Okay. So so that didn't work out too well. That was human effort. So now he's a hundred years old. You want an example of biblical faith? I'm gonna get as real as I can here for you, Forrest. Hundred year old man with a ninety year old wife. Okay. Now I'm gonna give you a son. Through Sarah? Yeah. Go love your wife. Huh? He's 90 years old. The sixth graders, huh? What? Yeah. He was 100. She was 90. Way past the time of having kids. That's faith. That's faith. He obeyed. He believed God. And Isaac, the son we just saw, means laughter. In my old age, I have a son. That's a miracle. Only God could do that. And that's what faith produces in us. It produces the unattainable. The things we couldn't do on our own. The law is not not based on faith. On the contrary. The man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone hung on a tree. That, that's so precious to me. And, and I, I, I can't get my mind around it, but all my, all the consequences, all the penalty for my sin, eternal consequences, fell on Jesus Christ. He is the perfect sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God. I believe that. I trust in that. Cursed is every man's tree. He redeemed us. You guys understand that concept of redeemed? He bought us back. We were slaves. We were on the wrong boat, going in the wrong direction. He stopped that boat and paid our fare to go in the opposite direction. The blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. 
by faith, by trusting. So it comes down to some, something very simple. It's not what you do that matters. Now, I'm not going to try to tell you that. I mean, James will tell you that faith without works is dead, and, 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 and that's, that's certainly part of this formula. But it's not what you do that matters. That's not what gets God's attention. It's what you believe that matters. It's what you believe that matters. When I was uh, just, I, we started our church and I, we, we became a free church, an evangelical free church. And we had a district super, superintendent then that, his name was Wally Norling. And he, he didn't have an office that was in his house. And he's just planted churches all throughout Southern California. There was one church in Los Angeles, and, and, uh, but he kind of had a formula, growing neighborhood, uh, and this was back in the 60s, where different neighborhoods were just exploding, and so we'd find a, a, a suitable candidate, find people that were interested, put them together in a Bible study, church after church after church after church after church was started. And I think in the course of his career, like he started 40 or 50 churches. Amazing. I mean, it was just un unprecedented. And then he would meet together with these pastors. And as it got too big, he'd put us in little clusters of, of, of guys that would get together on a regular basis. And I remember the one thing that he would tell us over and over again. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove. Basically, love Jesus be faithful as work, but you've got nothing to prove to me, to your congregation, whatever. You work for Jesus. That's who you work for. Really? Yeah. And I was just in touch with a guy that, that left our church in, in, um, in El Segundo, and he's now a pastor in Pennsylvania. And uh, you know, he was in a business world and stuff, and went to seminary, and he's got this church, about 600 people. And I've just been praying for him and just sent him a note just thinking about it. He says, Duke, you know, I, I appreciate so much the foundation I had at OCF. And, and, uh, but you know what? There's times I just don't know that I can do it anymore. People just are, I, I mean, it's killing me. And I told him, I said, the, the number one phrase I had that got me through, through uh, a lot of tough spots, don't let the turkeys get you down. Because there's a lot of turkeys. you got nothing to prove to anybody. Just serve Jesus. So it's not what you do that matters. It's what you believe that matters. Think about that. If you really believe that the way to get God's attention is through the things you do and proving yourself over and over and over again, how disappointing must that be when God doesn't come through? Isn't that kind of the, 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 the what is it, the, the prosperity gospel? That if you do this, this, and this, you can guarantee that God will do this? How many of you found God to be that predictable, that controllable? Like, if I give him this, then I'll get this in return. There's a lot of really angry Christians out there that thought if they did the right things, that God would bless them. It doesn't work out that way. And we've, we sing songs to that effect, of how, of how, though you slay me, still I will love you. Because God has a bigger plan and purpose than that. And what does he require of us? that we would believe in. So the question is, which life are you living? Honestly. Because if I'm honest with you, a lot of times, I'm living a performance-driven life. 
I'm trying to impress you. I'm trying to impress my wife. I'm trying to impress my kids. I want them to think that I'm a good person. But there's not a lot of rest in that. There's not a lot of security. There's not a lot of peace that comes from that. The faith rest life is just being content and satisfied knowing that God loves me just the way I am. He's done it all. And I cooperate with him. Let me close with one verse. You guys know this, but I think it's great to close with, with Jesus in our ears. He's been talking with disciples and ministering to them. They've reached some, some hard times, uh, rejection. People are not responding to the messages he would like. And then in Matthew chapter 11, he turns to his disciples and he turns to the crowds following. And he says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you a bigger burden. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> See, that's why you got to pay attention. No, I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. The only place where Jesus uses terms that are concrete as opposed to metaphorical is right here. Where he says, I am gentle and I am humble. What do you think of the qualities that Jesus wants in us? I think he wants us to be gentle and he wants us to be humble. But you know what? You will never be gentle or humble if you're living a performance-driven life. Because the performance-driven life is fueled by pride. And pride is it mutually exclusive to humility and it destroys gentleness. Because pride gives us this sense of entitlement that we can treat people that we don't like a certain way. We can judge them, all these different things. But Jesus said, no, I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if I have to make a pitch for Jesus Christ and for Christian faith, this is the verse I want to go to. I don't want to take you to the, the Star of David and 613 commandments. I don't want you to take you to the prophet and the Quran where it spells all these things out that if you don't do these things, you're going to have your right hand cut off or this, that, or the other. I want to point you to Jesus Christ who says, I'm gentle. I'm humble. I'm your Savior. And all you need to do is trust me. Live for me. Rest in me. What's that psalm that says? Be still. And know that I'm God. Be still. And isn't that contrary to almost how all of us are? Don't most of us want to hyperactivity and, and do all these things? And, and sometimes we just need to rest. Let me pray. God, I, I, I pray, Lord, for myself first and foremost that, that this just really wouldn't be words on a page, but Lord, that be life-giving truth. Father, that I would be open and, and willing to trust you, to set my paltry effort aside, my flimsy aims and, and goals um, in accordance with, with the real truth, which is if I just trust you, if I believe you, that's what matters most. That's what, that's what draws your attention, is when we trust you, when we believe you. 
And God, I pray that for my brothers and sisters here too. I, I pray that you would help us to, to understand that and, and the consequences of, of forsaking it. Lord, that we might be gentle and humble as you are. For I pray it in Jesus' name.